Section 5 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Third day, May the 16th. The court was quite as full at the commencement of the proceedings this morning as it had been on either of the preceding days. The Earl of Derby, Earl Grey, and other noble lords were again present. The jury took their seats shortly before ten o'clock. The learned judges, Lord Chief Justice Campbell, Mr. Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell, soon afterwards entered the court, accompanied by the recorder and sheriffs, and the prisoner was then placed at the bar. He appeared rather more anxious than on the two previous days, but was still calm and collected, and paid the greatest attention to the evidence. Counsel for the Crown. The Attorney-General, Mr. E. James, Q.C., Mr. Bodkin, Mr. Wellsby, and Mr. Huddleston. For the Prisoner, Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove, Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally. The next witness for the prosecution was Charles Joseph Roberts, examined by Mr. E. James. In November last I was apprentice to Mr. Hawkins, a druggist, at Rugeley. I know Palmer. On Tuesday, November the 20th, between 11 and 12 in the day, he came into Mr. Hawkins's shop. He first asked for two drachms of prussic acid, for which he had brought a bottle. I was putting it up when Newton, the assistant of salt, came in. Palmer told him he wanted to speak to him, and they went out of the shop together. I then saw Brassington, the cooper, take Newton away from Palmer, and enter into conversation with him. Palmer then came back into the shop, and asked me for six grains of strychnine and two drachms of Batley's solution of opium, commonly called Batley's sedative. I had put up the prussic acid, which was lying upon the counter. He stood at the counter when he ordered the things, and while I was preparing them behind the counter, he stood at the shop door, with his back to me, looking into the street. I was about five minutes preparing them. He stood at the door till they were ready, when I delivered them to him. The prussic acid in the bottle he had brought, the strychnine in a paper, and the opium in a bottle. He paid me for them and took them away. No one else was in the shop from the time when Palmer and Newton went out, till I delivered the things to him. When Palmer had left, Newton came in, and we had some conversation. I had at that time been six years in Mr. Hawkins's employment. Palmer had not bought any drugs at the shop for about two years. I know Thirlby, Palmer's assistant. He had started a shop about two years before. By Lord Campbell. Thirlby was carrying on business as a druggist at the time. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. I did not make entries of any of these things in the books. Re-examined. When articles are paid for across the counter, I am not in the habit of making entries of them in the books. The Attorney General stated that Dr. Bamford was seriously ill and unable to attend, but his depositions would be read. Mr. William Stevens, examined by the Attorney General. I have been a merchant in the city, but am now out of business. Was stepfather to the deceased Mr. Cook. I married his father's widow fifteen or eighteen years ago, 
and have known him intimately ever since. I was made executor to his grandfather's will. I was always on friendly terms with him, and constantly had the care of him. He had property worth altogether about £12,000. He was articled to a solicitor at Worthing, in Sussex, but he did not follow the profession. He had been connected with the turf about three or four years, perhaps not so much. I did everything in my power to withdraw him from that pursuit. Lord Campbell, but you still remained on friendly terms? Witness, on affectionate terms. The last time I saw him alive was at the station at Euston Square, about two o'clock on the afternoon of the 5th of November. I think he told me he was going to Rugeley, but I am not quite sure. He looked better than I had seen him for a very long time. I was so gratified that I said, My boy, you look very well now. You don't look anything of an invalid. He said he was quite well, and struck himself on the chest. I think he added he would be quite right if he was happy. In point of appearance, he was not a robust man. His complexion was pale. During the previous winter, he had had a sore throat for some months. I first heard of his death on the evening of Wednesday, November the 21st. Mr. Jones of Lutterworth called at my house and informed me of it. The next day I went down to Lutterworth with Mr. Jones for the purpose of searching for the will and papers. The day after, I went to Rugeley. I arrived between twelve and one. I asked to see the body when I got to the inn. I met Palmer in the passage. I had seen him once before, and Mr. Jones introduced me to him. He followed us upstairs to see the body, and removed the sheet from it to rather below the waist. I was much struck with its appearance. I first noticed the tightness of the muscles across the face. There did not appear to me to be any emaciation or disease. We all went downstairs to one of the sitting-rooms. In a short time I said to Palmer, I hear from Mr. Jones that you know something of my son's affairs. Can you tell me anything about them? He replied, Yes, there are £4,000 worth of bills out of his, and I am sorry to say my name is to them, but I have got a paper drawn up by a lawyer and signed by him to show that I never had any money from them. I expressed great surprise at this and said, I fear there won't be 4,000 shillings to pay you. But, I asked, had he no horses, no property? Palmer replied, Yes, he has some horses, but they are mortgaged. I said, Has he no sporting bets, nor anything of that sort? He mentioned one debt of £300. I would rather not state the name of the person who owed it. It is a relation of his, not a sporting gentleman. The witness wrote down the name and handed it to the counsel on both sides and the judges. Lord Campbell. The name is immaterial. Palmer said he did not know of any other debt. I said I thought his sporting creditors would have to take his sporting effects, as I should have nothing to do with them. I added, well, whether he has left anything or not, poor fellow, he must be buried. Palmer immediately said, oh, I'll bury him myself, if that's all. I said, I certainly can't think of your doing that. I shall do it. Cook's brother-in-law, who had come to meet me, was then present and expressed a great wish to bury him. I said, no, as his executor, I shall take care of that. I cannot have the funeral immediately, as I intend to bury him in London, in his mother's grave. 
I shall be sorry to inconvenience the people here at the inn, but I will get it done as soon as possible. Palmer said, Oh, that's of no consequence, but the body ought to be fastened up at once. He repeated that observation. So long as the body is fastened up, it is of no consequence. While I was talking to Cook's brother-in-law, Palmer and Jones left the room. They returned in about half an hour. I then asked Palmer for the name of some respectable undertaker in Rugeley, that I might at once order a coffin and give directions. He said, I have been and done that. I have ordered a shell and strong oak coffin. I expressed my surprise. I said, I did not give you any authority to do so, but I must see the undertaker to let him have my instructions. I think he told me the name of the undertaker. I ordered dinner for myself, my son-in-law, and Jones, and I asked Palmer to come in. We all dined together at the inn about three. I was going back to London that afternoon. After dinner, Palmer being still present, I desired Mr. Jones to be so good as to go upstairs and get me Mr. Cook's betting-book, or pocket-book, or books or papers that might be there. I had seen him with a betting-book, a small one with clasps. Mr. Jones then left the room, and Palmer followed him. They were away ten minutes. Mr. Jones said, on their return, I am very sorry to say I can't find any betting-book or papers. I exclaimed, No betting-book, Mr. Jones? Turning towards Palmer, I said, How is this? Palmer said, Oh, it is of no manner of use if you find it. I said, No use, sir? I am the best judge of that. He replied, it is of no use. I said, I am told it is of use. I understand my son won a great deal of money at Shrewsbury, and I ought to know something about it. He replied, It is of no use, I assure you. When a man dies, his bets are done with. Besides, Cook received the greater part of his money on the course at Shrewsbury. I said, Very well, the book ought to be found, and must be found. Palmer then said, in a quieter tone, It will no doubt be found. I again said, Sir, it shall be found. I then went to the door, and calling to the housekeeper, I desired that everything in the bedroom should be locked up, and nothing touched until I returned or sent someone. Before leaving, I went upstairs to take a last look at the body. Some servants were in the room, turning over the bedclothes, and also the undertaker. I had given him instructions before dinner to place the body in the coffin. He was standing by the side of the shell. The body was in it, uncovered. I knelt down by the side of the shell, and taking the right hand of the corpse, I found it clinched. I looked across the body and saw that the left hand was clinched in the same manner. I returned to town and communicated next morning with my solicitor, who gave me a letter to Mr. Gardner of Rugeley. I returned to Rugeley, where I arrived at eight o'clock next evening, Saturday. I started from Euston Square at two o'clock, and on the platform I met Palmer. He said he had received a telegraphic message summoning him to London after I had left Rugeley. I asked him where Cook's horses were kept. He told me at Eddisford, near Rugeley, and said he would drive me out there if I wished. When I got to Wolverton, where the train stops, I saw him again in the refreshment room. I said, Mr. Palmer, this is a very melancholy thing. 
the death of my poor son happening so suddenly. I think for the sake of his brother and sister, who are somewhat delicate, it might be desirable for his medical friends to know what his complaints were. Cook had a sister and half-brother. Palmer replied, that can be done very well. The bell then rang, and we went to our seats. He travelled in a different carriage till we reached Rugby, where I saw him again in the refreshment room. I said, Mr. Palmer, as I live at a distance, I think I ought to ask a solicitor at Rugeley to look after my interest. He said, Oh, yes, you might do that. Do you know any solicitor, I said? No. I then got some refreshment and went back to my carriage. I found Palmer sitting there. I had no conversation with him before we reached Rugeley, but continued talking to a lady and gentleman with whom I had been conversing since I left town. After we arrived at Rugeley, Palmer said, Do you know any solicitor here? I said, No, I don't. I am a perfect stranger. He said, I know them all intimately, and I can introduce you to one. When I get home, I must have a cup of coffee, and I will then come over and take you all about. I thanked him, as I had done once or twice before, and said I wouldn't trouble him. He repeated his offer. Altering my tone and manner, I said, Mr. Palmer, if I should call in a solicitor to give me advice, I suppose you will have no objection to answer any question he may put to you. I altered my tone purposely. I looked steadily at him, but although the moon was shining, I could not see his features distinctly. He said, with a spasmodic convulsion of the throat, which was perfectly apparent, Oh, no, certainly not. At Wolverton, I had purposely mentioned my desire that there should be a post-mortem examination, and I ought to say that he was quite calm when I mentioned it. After I asked him that question, there was a pause for three or four minutes. He then again proposed to come over to me after he had had his coffee, and I again begged he would not trouble himself. I went to Mr. Gardiner and then came back to the inn. Palmer came to me and began to talk about the bills. He said, It's a very unpleasant affair for me. I said, I think it right to tell you that since I saw you I have had rather a different account of Mr. Cook's affairs. He said, Oh, indeed. I hope, at any rate, they will be settled pleasantly. I said, His affairs can only be settled in a court of chancery. He asked me what friends Mr. Cook visited in the neighbourhood of London. I said several. The next day, Sunday, I saw him again between five and six in the evening. He said, You were talking of going to Eddisford. If I were you, I would not take a solicitor with me there. I said, Why not? I shall use my own judgment. Later in the evening he came again to my room, holding a piece of paper, as if he wished to give it to me. I went on with my writing and said, Pray, who is Mr. Smith? He repeated, Mr. Smith? Two or three times, and I said, I mean a Mr. Smith who sat up with my son one night. He said, He is a solicitor in the town. I asked if he was in practice. He replied, Yes. I said, I ask you the question because, as the betting book is lost, I should wish to know who has been with the young man. After a pause, I said, Did you attend my son in a medical capacity? He said, Oh, dear, no. 
I said, I ask you because I am determined to have his body examined, and if you had attended him professionally, I suppose the gentleman I shall call in would think it proper that you should be present. He asked who was to perform the examination. I said, I cannot say. I shall not know myself until tomorrow. I think it right to tell you of it, but whether you are present at it or not is a matter of indifference to me. Did you perceive any sign of decomposition in the body, or anything which would render its immediate enclosure necessary? On the contrary, the body did not look to me like a dead body. I was surprised at its appearance. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee The last time Cook stayed at my house was in January or February last year, for about a month. He then had a sore throat. I do not remember that it was continually sore. He had not the least difficulty in swallowing. I did not notice any ulcers about his face. In the spring he complained of being an invalid, and said his medical friends told him that if he was not better in the winter, he ought to go to a warm climate. No communication was made to me about insuring his life. I was dissatisfied about the loss of the betting book. I desired that everything belonging to the deceased might be locked up. When I returned to Rugeley with Palmer, I went to seek for Mr. Gardiner. I saw him on the following Sunday morning. I have once been in communication with the police officer, Field. That was a fortnight or three weeks after my son's death. Field called upon me. I never applied to him. By Mr. Baron Alderson. I never called upon Mr. Bamford, but he dined with me at the Talbot Arms. Mary Keeley, examined by Mr. Wellesby. I am a widow, living at Rugeley. On the morning of Wednesday, the 21st of November last, I was sent for to lay out Cook's body. My sister-in-law went with me. That was about one o'clock in the morning. The body was still warm, but the hands and arms were cold. The body was lying on the back. The arms were crossed upon the chest. The head lay a little turned on one side. The body was very stiff indeed. I have laid out many corpses. I never saw one so stiff before. We had difficulty in straightening the arms. We could not keep them straight down to the body. I passed a piece of tape under the back and tied it round the wrists to fasten the arms down. The right foot turned on one side, outwards. We were obliged to tie both the feet together. The eyes were open. We were a considerable time before we could close them, because the eyelids were very stiff. The hands were closed and were very stiff. Palmer was upstairs with us. He lighted me while I took two rings off Cook's fingers. That was off one hand. The fingers were very stiff, and I had difficulty in getting off the rings. I got them off, and when I had done so, the hand closed again. I did not see anything of a betting book, nor any small book like a pocket book cross-examined by Mr. Grove. It is not unusual to tie the hands of a corpse. I have never before used tape to tie the arms. I have used it to tie the ankles together and also for the toes. I have never seen it used for the arms. It is usual to lay the arms by the sides. If the body gets stiff, the arms remain as they were at the time of death. If the eyes are closed at the time of death, there is no difficulty in keeping them closed. It is a common thing to put penny pieces upon them to keep them closed. 
that is to prevent the eyelid drawing back the jaw is generally tied up shortly after death re-examined by the attorney-general i cannot say how many bodies i have laid out but i have laid out a great many of all ages i never knew of the arms being tied before this instance it is usual to lay the arms by the sides within a few minutes after death i was called up at half-past twelve it was half-past one when i went upstairs to the room where cook lay sometimes the feet of corpses get twisted out it is then that they are tied that occurs within about half an hour after death i have never known the eyelid so stiff as in this case i have put penny pieces on the eyes in those cases the lids were stiff but not so stiff as in this instance john thomas harland examined by mr bodkin i am a physician residing at stafford on the twenty sixth of november last i went from stafford to rugeley to be present at a post-mortem examination i arrived at rugeley at ten o'clock in the morning i called at the house of mr bamford surgeon as i went there palmer joined me in the street he came from the back of his own house i had frequently seen him and had spoken to him before he said i am glad that you are come to make a post-mortem examination some one might have been sent whom i did not know i said what is this case i hear there is a suspicion of poisoning he said oh no i think not he had an epileptic fit on monday and tuesday last and you will find old disease in the heart and in the head we then went together to mr bamford's i had brought no instruments with me having only been requested to be present at the examination palmer said that he had instruments and offered to fetch them and lend them to me he palmer said there was a very queer old man who seemed to suspect him of something but he did not know what he meant or what he wanted he also said he seems to suspect that i have got the betting book cook had no betting book that would be of use to any one mr bamford and i then went to the house of mr freer who is a surgeon at rugeley palmer did not go with us thence we went to the talbot arms where the post-mortem examination was proceeded with mr devonshire operated and mr newton assisted him there were in the room besides mr bamford palmer myself and several other persons i stood near mr devonshire the body was very stiff by lord campbell it was much stiffer than bodies usually are five or six days after death examination resumed the muscles were very highly developed by that i mean that they were strongly contracted and thrown out i examined the hands they were stiff and were firmly closed the abdominal viscera were first examined at the suggestion of lord campbell the witness read a report which he prepared on the day on which this post-mortem examination took place november the twenty sixth eighteen fifty five and transmitted to mr stevens the stepfather of the deceased this report described the state of the various internal organs as being perfectly healthy and natural the material statements were all repeated in the subsequent examination of the witness after reading the report the witness continued the abdominal viscera were in a perfectly healthy state they were taken out of the body we examined the liver it was healthy 
The lungs were healthy, but contained a good deal of blood. Not more than would be accounted for by gravitation after death. We examined the head. The brain was quite healthy. There was no extravasation of blood and no serum. There was nothing which, in my judgment, could cause pressure. The heart was contracted and contained no blood. That was the result not of disease, but of spasmodic action. At the larger end of the stomach, there were numerous small, yellowish-white spots, about the size of mustard seeds. They would not at all account for death. I doubt whether they would have any effect upon the health. I think they were mucus follicles. The kidneys were full of blood, which had gravitated there. They had no appearance of disease. The blood was in a fluid state. That is not usual. It is found so in some cases of sudden death, which are of rare occurrence. The lower part of the spinal cord was not very closely examined. We examined the other part of that cord. It presented a perfectly natural appearance. On a subsequent day, I think the 25th of January, it was thought right to exhume the body that the spinal cord might be more carefully examined. I was present at that examination. The lower part of the spinal cord was then minutely examined. A report was made of that examination. This report was put in, and was read by the witness. It described minutely the appearance and condition of the spinal cord and its envelopes, and concluded with this statement. There is nothing in the condition of the spinal cord or its envelopes to account for death, nothing but the most normal and healthy state, allowance being made for the lapse of time since the death of the deceased. Examination resumed. I am still of opinion that there was nothing in the appearance of the spine to account for the death of the deceased, and nothing of an unusual kind which might not be referred to changes after death. When the stomach and the intestines were removed from the body on the occasion of the first examination, they were separately emptied into a jar, and were afterwards placed in it. Mr. Devonshire and Mr. Newton removed them from the body. They were the only two who operated. At that time the prisoner was standing on the right of Mr. Newton, while Mr. Devonshire was opening the stomach, a push was given by Palmer, which sent Mr. Newton against Mr. Devonshire, and shook some of the contents of the stomach into the body. I thought a joke was passing among them, and said, Don't do that. My Lord Campbell. Might not Palmer have been impelled by someone outside him? There was no one who could have impelled him. What did you observe Palmer do? I saw Mr. Newton and Mr. Devonshire pushed together, and Palmer was over them. He was smiling at the time. Examination continued. After this interruption, the opening of the stomach was pursued. The stomach contained about three ounces of a brownish fluid. There was nothing particular in that. Palmer was looking on and said, They won't hang us yet. He said that to Mr. Bamford in a loud whisper. That remark was made upon his own observation of the stomach. The stomach, after being emptied, was put into the jar. The intestines were then examined, but nothing particular was found in them. They were contracted and very small. The viscera, with their contents, as taken from the body, were placed in the jar, which was then covered over with two bladders, which were tied and sealed. I tied and sealed them. After I had done so, I placed the jar upon the table by the body. Palmer was then moving about the room. In a few minutes I missed the jar from where I had placed it. 
During that time my attention had been withdrawn by the examination. On missing the jar, I called out, "'Where's the jar?' And Palmer, from the other end of the room, said, "'It is here. I thought it would be more convenient for you to take away.' There was a door at the end of the room where he was. He was within a yard or two of that door, and about twenty-four feet from the table on which the body was lying. Before making this last statement, the witness referred to a plan of the room which was put in by the Attorney-General. The door near which Palmer was standing was not the one by which he had entered the room. I called to Palmer, "'Will you bring it here?' I went from the table and met Palmer halfway, coming with the jar. The jar had, since I last saw it, been cut through both bladders. The cut was hardly an inch long. It had been done with a sharp instrument.' I examined the cut. The edges were quite clean. No part of the contents of the jar could have passed through. Finding this cut, I said, Here is a cut. Who has done this? Palmer and Mr. Devonshire and Mr. Newton all said that they had not done it, and nothing more was said about it. When I was about to remove the jar from the room, the prisoner asked me what I was going to do with it. I said I should take it to Mr. Frears. He said, I had rather you would take it to Stafford than take it there. I made no answer that I remember. I took it to Mr. Freer's house. After doing so, I returned to the Talbot Arms. I left the jar in Mr. Freer's hall, tied and sealed. Immediately upon finding the slit in the cover, I cut the strings and altered the bladders, so that the slits were not over the top of the jar. I resealed them. After going to Mr. Freer's, I went to the Talbot Arms. I went into the yard to order my carriage, and while I was waiting for it, the prisoner came across to me. He asked me what I had done with the jar. I told him that I had left it at Mr. Freer's. He inquired what would be done with it, and I said it would go either to Birmingham or London that night for examination. I do not recollect that he made any reply. When I recovered the jar, I tied each cover separately and sealed it with my own seal. During the first post-mortem examination, there were several Rugeley persons present, but I believe no one on behalf of the prisoner. At the second examination, there was someone there on behalf of Palmer. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. In the course of the post-mortem examination, Palmer said, They won't hang us yet. I am not sure whether that observation was addressed to Dr. Bamford, or whether he prefaced it by the word, Doctor. I think that he first said it to Dr. Bamford in a loud whisper, and afterwards repeated it to several persons. I had said to him that I had heard that there was a suspicion of poisoning. I made notes in pencil at the time of the post-mortem, and I wrote a more formal report from those notes as soon as I got home. The original pencil notes are destroyed. I sent the fair copy to Mr. Stevens, Cook's father-in-law, the same evening. They were not produced before the coroner. At the base of the tongue of the deceased, I observed some enlarged mucus follicles. They were not pustules, containing matter, but enlarged mucus follicles, of long standing. There were a good many of them, but I do not suppose that they would occasion much inconvenience. They might cause some degree of pain, but I think that it would be slight. I do not believe that they were enlarged glands. I should not say that deceased's lungs were diseased, though they were not in their normal state. The lungs were full of blood, and the heart empty. I had no lens at the post-mortem, but I made an examination which was satisfactory to me, 
without one. The brain was carefully taken out. The membranes and external parts were first examined, and thin slices of about a quarter of an inch in thickness were taken off and subjected to separate examination. I think by that means we should have discovered disease if any had existed, and if there had been any indication of disease, I should have examined it more carefully. I examined the spinal cord as far down as possible, and if there had been any appearance of disease, I should have opened the canal. There was no appearance of disease, however. We opened down to the first vertebra. If we had found a softening of the spinal cord, I do not think that it would have been sufficient to have caused Cook's death. Certainly not. A softening of the spinal cord would not produce tetanus. It might produce paralysis. I do not think, as a medical man investigating the cause of death, that it was necessary carefully to examine the spinal cord. I do not know who suggested that there should be an examination of the spinal cord two months after death. There were some appearances of decomposition when we examined the spinal cord, but I do not think that there was sufficient to interfere with our examination. I examined the body to ascertain if there was any trace of venereal disease. I did find certain indications of that description, and the marks of old excoriation, which were cicatrized over, re-examined by the Attorney-General. There were no indications of wounds or sores, such as could by possibility produce tetanus. There was no disease of the lungs to account for death. The heart was healthy, and its emptiness I attribute to spasmodic action. The heart being empty, of course death ensued. The convulsive spasmodic action of the muscles of the body, which was deposed to yesterday by Mr. Jones, would, in my judgment, occasion the emptiness of the heart. There was nothing whatever in the brain to indicate the presence of any disease of any sort, but if there had been, I never heard or read of any disease of the brain ever producing tetanus. There was no relaxation of the spinal cord which would account for the symptoms accompanying Mr. Cook's death, as they have been described. In fact, there was no relaxation of the spinal cord at all, and there is no disease of the spinal cord with which I am acquainted that would produce tetanus. End of section 5